Today is a great feast of Christ the King. It was established in 1925 by Pope Pius XI, who, in describing the true Christian ideal, stated, quote, If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and on earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, then it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to revealed truths and the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. He must reign in our bodies, which should serve as instruments for the interior sanctification of our souls. Once men recognize, both in private and public life, that Christ is king, society will at last receive the great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. Close quotes, the vicar of Christ. Christ is king, and he must reign in our minds, in our wills, in our hearts, in our bodies. Once men recognize, both in private and public life, that Christ is king, society will at last receive the great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. Pius XI makes it clear that the chief difficulties facing mankind consist in turning away from Christ in both public and private life. Here are just a few specific objections made by Pius XI to the situation in his day. Keep in mind, this is 40 years before the Council. Notice how current these problems seem, even though these words were written some 90 years ago. The Pope. Number one, we cannot but lament the general spirit of insubordination and refusal to live up to one's obligations which has become so widespread as to almost appear the customary mode of living. Number two, we lament, too, the destruction of purity among women and young girls as evidenced by the increasing immodesty of their dress and conversation and by their participation in shameful dances. Number three, Legislation was passed which did not recognize that God or Jesus Christ had any rights over marriage, an erroneous view which debased matrimony to the level of a mere civil contract. Number four, God and Jesus Christ, as well as his doctrines, were banished from the school. As an inevitable consequence, the school became not only secular non-religious, but openly atheistical and anti-religious. In such circumstances, it was easy to persuade poor, ignorant children that neither God nor religion are of any importance as far as their daily lives are concerned. God's name, moreover, was scarcely ever mentioned in such schools unless it were to be to, to, be to blaspheme him or to ridicule his church. Number five, the sense of man's personal dignity and of the value of human life has been lost. And number six, this is for anyone that thinks that the Catholic in name only, politicians, professors, 
authors and so forth, are recent development. Listen to this. Many believe in or claim they believe in and hold fast to Catholic doctrine. But in spite of these protestations, they write, speak, and what is more, act as if it were not necessary any longer to follow the teachings and psalm pronouncements of the Holy See. Close quotes, the Vicar of Christ. Now we could go on and on and on, simply multiplying papal warnings from Pius XI alone, warnings that were for the most part ignored. Let's hold those thoughts for a while and turn to the current crisis in the church, try to come to a deeper understanding, a spiritually fruitful understanding of what is going on and why. With that in mind, I'll read and comment on excerpts from a very thoughtful work. I must apologize as the author has very, very tightly constructed arguments and does not wish his work to be edited, but in a sermon I just take out a chainsaw and chop away. So out of deference to him, I'm not going to identify him, but uh, since I've rearranged, edited, cut and pasted, and, and inserted things in, uh, so it's not really fair to him. But I want to make it clear anything good here isn't to be credited to me. I'll take credit for the errors. Okay, so we'll start with a thumbnail sketch of what might be called the standard traditionalist explanation for the current crisis. And as we'll see, whether or not someone actually subscribes this particular explanation doesn't really matter because our response should still be the same. Okay, so the standard explanation offered by many traditional Catholics to explain the the present crisis is somehow a group of liberal theologians and bishops gained control of the proceedings of the Second Vatican Council. They wrote the documents in such a way as, as so that they contained ambiguous phrases, verbal time bombs, which can then be exploited after the Council to implement all these disastrous changes. Then after the Council, they gained access to virtually all the key positions, possibly even including the papacy, in order to implement these changes. And since God respects man's free will and the choices that men make, we are now in the position of being ruled by a bunch of modernists who are in control of the Vatican bureaucracy and, to a large extent, the papacy and the episcopacy. Okay, now for the, this may be the first time that a recent converts have heard that explanation, but for many of us, if we heard it once, we've heard it a thousand times. You know, the liberals hijacked everything or nearly everything at the council, and now they hold all the levers of power. So, let's just grant all that for the sake of the argument. In fact, you can paint it as dark and dismal as you like. So, if we're going to grant all that, are we supposed to believe that a few puny men have somehow seized control of the church? I guess maybe when God wasn't looking. Are we supposed to believe that a few puny men have wrestled control of the church out of the hands of the Almighty God? Are we supposed to believe that when Christ said, I will be with you always, what he really meant to say is, I'll be with you always until the Second Vatican Council? Because every one of those things is implicit in that explanation, and every one of of them is blasphemy. If that's what we're supposed to believe, then we might as well hang it up. Because either God's in charge of the church, or he isn't. It's that simple. We need to think like Catholics. Whose church is this? 
We are compelled by Scripture to believe in God's extraordinary love for his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the labor of water and the word of life that he might present, it to, might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Now that does not mean that God is strictly obliged to do everything he could conceivably do in order to bring every man to heaven. But such a love surely does mean that his relationship with his mystical body, the church, is of such a nature as to not allow a situation in which he has virtually abandoned his flock to the wolves. But insofar as anyone subscribes to that explanation, that's precisely what they believe. God's relationship to his mystical body, the church, is of such a nature as to not allow a situation in which he has virtually abandoned his flock to the wolves. Given Christ's love, as described by St. Paul, and given the following three points, and each one of these is explicitly taught by the First Vatican Council. First, that Christ established in Peter and his successors all that is necessary to secure the perpetual welfare and lasting good of the church. Second, if Peter, through Christ, lives, presides, and judges to this day always in his successors, including Pope Francis. And third, Christ has not abandoned the direction of the church. Those three points are all taught by Vatican I. Given all that, then the standard explanation for the crisis represents an extraordinarily shallow view of what is happening within Christ's beloved, the church. God certainly does respect man's free will. But it's easy, it's easy for him. He's totally capable at the same time of so ordering things according to his divine providence that the church will have shepherds according to his will. As St. Gregory the Great said, quote, Divine justice provides shepherds according to the just deserts of the faithful. Close quote. That is a frightening thought. Divine justice provides shepherds according to the just deserts of the faithful. Now, besides all this, there's also something called efficient grace. Without getting into all the details, without tampering at all with man's freedom, efficient grace exercises such a powerful effect on a man's heart and mind as to make it virtually certain that he would comply with God's holy will. And this compliance with God's holy will would certainly include the popes. We're therefore confronted with a great mystery. We are faced with the absolutely necessary conclusion that the present crisis in the church is not just due to the permissive will of God, but to his positive will. It is an absolutely necessary conclusion that the present crisis in the church is not just due to the permissive will of God. In other words, it's not just because God is permitting this crisis, but it's due to his positive will. In other words, God is also willing this crisis. That is essential to understand 
Let's pause for a minute, walk back to it to make sure everyone gets it. If you want to understand what's going on right now, you need to burn this into your mind. If Christ's love for the church, as described by St. Paul, be true, and it is, and if the following three points, all taught by Vatican I, are true, and they are, number one, Christ established in Peter and his successors all that is necessary to secure the perpetual welfare and lasting good of the church, and he did. Two, Peter lives, presides, and judges to this day always in his successors, including Pope Francis, and he does. And third, Christ has not abandoned the direction of the church, and he hasn't. Then it is an absolutely necessary conclusion that the present crisis in the church is not due just to the permissive will of God. It's not just because God is allowing this to happen, but it's also to his positive will. He is also willing the crisis. And, of course, this also means that the standard traditionalist so-called explanation is completely inadequate, spiritually speaking. The standard traditionalist so-called explanation actually misses the whole point. The present crisis in the church is not just because God is permitting it, God is also positively willing the crisis. What are we seeing? Are we saying that God is not just permitting this disaster to happen? He's actually willing it to happen? Yes, we are saying that. In other words, just as there was something in the positive will of God involved in sending in the Assyrians and the Babylonians to smash the Jews in the Old Covenant, as a means of chastisement and eventual renewal. So also we must conclude that the changes wrought in the past 50 years are also due in some way to the positive will of God. We may be faced with confusion when we try to relate the present chaos in the church to the promises which Christ made to his church and also to the promises and guarantees laid out for us in the teaching of the First Vatican Council. But such confusion is really a result of our lack of understanding of the relationship between good, evil, and punishment. St. Thomas asked the question whether God is the cause of evil. And without getting into the entire answer, he points out, well, God is not the cause of moral evils, that is to say, sin, that since justice is one of the goods of the universe, since justice is part and parcel of the divine order in the universe, that it is, therefore it is necessary for penalties for the violation of justice to be imposed upon sinners. Justice requires that penalties be dealt out to sinners. And so God does cause the evils which are imposed on sinners as the penalties for the violation of justice but he does not cause sin itself. He only permits it. Again, God does cause the evils, which are penalties for sinners, but he does not cause sin itself. He only permits it. Okay, let's start drawing this together. First point, the chaos and the real evil in the church today are a mixture of God's penalty for sin and man's fault, a mixture of which is very difficult to sort out in most circumstances. Second point, God does not cause any moral evil. To claim that would be blasphemy. And God truly does not desire the death or ruin of any man. Third point, 
According to the teaching of Vatican I, God in some way positively wills the orientations and policies of the pontificates. And this would extend during, through, after, and right on. It'll extend to the end of the world. The Vatican Council didn't cut that off. Fourth point, if these policies seem in any way evil to us, then we need to consider the probability that this orientation is a chastisement designed to draw us out of deep sin. Sin which had only gotten deeper if God would have continued to bless us with what we had and loved before the chastisement. That bears repeating. The chaos and evil in the church today is a mixture of God's penalty and man's fault, a mixture which is very difficult to sort out in most circumstances. God is not the author of any moral evil, and he truly does not desire the death or ruin of any man. According to the teaching of Vatican I, God in some way positively wills the orientations and policies of the pontificates, including the ones since Vatican II. And if these policies seem in any way evil to us, then we need to consider the probability this orientation is a chastisement designed to draw us out of deep sin, sin which would only gone deeper if God would have continued to bless us with what we had in love before the chastisement. What are we saying? We're saying the crisis in the church is a penalty. It's a chastisement which is not simply being permitted, but positively willed by God. It's a chastisement designed to draw us out of deep sin. Okay, so what deep sin could we possibly be talking about? Well, a simple reading of the papal encyclicals ranging from the middle of the 19th century right up to Vatican II, and I read excerpts just from Pius XI to get you an idea of it, but a simple reading of those encyclicals makes it clear that the pre-Vatican II Catholic world was, while outwardly appearing healthy, profoundly diseased within. Here in America, for example, we possess supposedly the best Catholic school system in the world. Our convents were full, vocations of priesthood were abundant. We believe, for the most part, was written in the Baltimore Catechism. At the same time, however, we also believed in unlimited economic, scientific, and technological progress. We're up to our necks in usury and the pursuit of unlimited financial gain. We began to tolerate the teaching of evolution to our children and then came to believe in it in ever-increasing numbers. The priests and religious began to disbelieve the teaching of the fathers and then believed the blasphemous claims of the modern so-called scripture scholars. We increasingly believed that psychological analysis and materialistic explanations of human behavior had far more to offer, were far deeper and more important than understanding the different effects upon human nature of things like virtue, vice, and the grace of God. Many welcomed divorce and looked forward to contraception. We polluted Sundays and holy days with our worldly activities. And more and more, God became a one-hour Sunday appendage to the real pursuit of our lives sat in front of our TVs, and increasingly watched banality, worldliness, immodesty, and crudity. Sports became a religion. In large part, as we heard right from the beginning of this sermon, we ignored the teaching prudential warnings of the popes on questions of philosophy, dogma, morals, and the political and social realms. In short, Christ was only allowed to rule in a certain aspect of our lives. Christ was not the king across the board, in both public and private life. In other words, we were attempting to serve both God and the world. 
in a way completely unprecedented in human history. The most fundamental teaching of the gospel concerning our primary obligation towards loving and following Christ was being drowned beneath this duplicity. Christ our Lord has specifically told us that no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, he will despise the one and devoted to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, for where thy treasure is, there also is thy heart. Those are the psalm words of God the Son. You cannot serve God and mammon, for where thy treasure is, there also is thy heart. We as a Catholic people, we're trying to serve two masters. But God only puts up with this kind of behavior for a while. As St. Alphonsus explains, quote, When at length God sees that we are willing to yield neither to benefits, nor threats, nor admonitions, and that we will not amend, then he is forced by our own selves to punish us. When he does chastise, it is not to please himself, but because we drive him to it. Close quotes. And what is the most effective chastisement which God can inflict upon man in such a situation? To let him have what he wants. God simply hands man over to his own natural freedom. It's as if he said, okay, you don't want to do it my way? Then do it your way. That's probably the most obvious feature of this chastisement. I'll get controversial. Take, for example, the new Mass, which facilitates this approach. It can be said reverently. In some places, it certainly is. For the most part, in so many parishes, a lot of what transpires before, during, and after Mass, both in the sanctuary and outside in the pews, really falls in the category of do it your way. My brother priest, just up there, they don't seem capable, so many of them, of just reading what's written there. You know, they, as they say, read the black, do the red. How hard is that? I guess it's pert near impossible. You don't want to do it my way? Do it your way. And we see the chaos in so many of the pews. You don't know. People will dress up better for a country club on Sunday afternoon than they will for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And on it goes. You don't need me to go down the list. We think of that. Turning man over to his own natural freedom is what a lot of the things, the new things in the church is about. The relaxation of fasting laws. You don't want to fast? Don't fast. The permission for girl altar boys. Indiscriminate promotion of NFP. Annulments for any reason. Any reason. Who knows? Etc. Etc. Perhaps the worst of the chastisements is the ecumenical movement by which the church and all the faithful are in fact lowered into the pool of the world's errors and sins. All these things have the effect of promoting natural freedom. Okay, you don't want to do it my way? Then do it your way. These things are in reality spiritual democracy. And if we as a Catholic people had come to the point of living profoundly duplicative lives, if we had surrendered ourselves in serving the world in all the other aspects of our lives, political, economic, educational, recreational, etc., then why should we find it surprising that God should hand us over to our own desires in our spiritual lives so that being reduced to helplessness, 
We might eventually turn away from our duplicity and return to him in poverty and in humility. It's clear that this idea that the Pope, the councils, and the bishop are solely responsible for the crisis in the church is unbelievably superficial. I consider it absolutely pathetic. And worse, this is the dominant view among so many of our people. And it's this very focus. The worst part of it is this very focus on blaming the popes, the bishops, the council, etc., the priests. It's this very focus which prevents us from perceiving the real roots of infidelity in our own lives, in our own attempts to serve both God and mammon, in our own refusal to serve Christ as king across the board, both our public and private lives. And this duplicity, this double-mindedness, this failure to seek first the kingdom of God as justice, this rejection of Christ the king is the very root of the chastisement and the chaos that we're suffering in the church today. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare, and as a Catholic people, we have deserved the nightmare because we have possessed the faith and trappings of Catholicism, but not the heart. We've deserved it, and for the most part, we still do. After all, whose vote put that man into the White House? Even granting every morbid detail of the standard traditionalist explanation for the crisis that the council's hijacked, liberal clergy is virtually control everything and all that. This explanation completely misses the forest for the trees. According to the teaching of Vatican I, God is in some way positively willing the orientations and policies of the pontificates during and after Vatican II, I might add. We each need to stop and enter into ourselves and examine our consciences. Have I been guilty of spiritual duplicity? Have I really sought first the kingdom of God and his justice? Or have I had to try to have it two ways? Been Catholic on Sunday and American the rest of the week? Have I been guilty of a sort of spiritual elitist attitude that I'm the person that has the true religion, the true mass? Well, forgetting that traditional mass is only a means to an end. Now, I love this mass, and we've suffered for it, and a lot of people here have suffered greatly for it. But the traditional mass and all this liturgy is only a means to an end. Have I been guilty of confusing ends and means? The traditional liturgy, the beauty of the chant, the beauty of polyphony, these are only means. The end is union with Christ. In other words, the end is holiness. Everything in this liturgy it just is ordered towards that. The end is holiness. It's union with Christ. And our holiness is directly proportional to our humility and to our charity. All this talk about how the council is hijacked, how liberal clergy is in charge of virtually everything, etc., even if it were all true, every last speck of it, it's still useless in terms of growing in humility or charity. It's just spiritually barren. It's the spiritual equivalent of contraception. And this isn't the time to be messing with spiritual contraceptives. We don't have much time. We don't have much time. 
Each one of us needs to ask himself, do I believe, do I really believe that Christ is the King? If I believe that, is that obvious in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds? God sees everything. He's looking for undivided heart. Let's close with a few thoughts from the Carmelite doctors. From a commentary on the little way. St. Therese sets out a wonderful vision of the mystery of the church. Her conclusion is that in the mystical body of the church, love lies at the basis of all vocations. The love that the Holy Spirit kindles in the hearts of Christians. If this burning love died out, there would be no more missionaries, no more preachers, no more martyrs. There would be nothing at all left in the church. Love alone is the life of the whole body of the church. What the church needs most is genuine love. We attach too much importance to externals, actions, and visible effectiveness, whereas all that counts, all that really bears fruit in the church, is the truth and purity and sincerity of love. That is what we should ask God for most of all and put into practice. St. John of the Cross. The smallest act of pure love is more precious in the sight of God and more profitable to the church and to the soul itself than all other works put together. In the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone. Love alone is the life of the whole body of the church. What the church needs most is genuine love. The smallest act of pure love is more precious in the sight of God and more profitable to the church and the soul itself than all other works put together. We attach too much importance to externals, actions, and visible effectiveness, whereas all that counts and all that really bears fruit in the church is the truth and purity and sincerity of love. That is what we should ask God for most of all and put into practice. In the evening of life, we should be judged by love alone. In the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone.